You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Iran's wiper attacks may have been posing as criminal gang capers. CISA issues an alert on the USAID constant contact credential compromise. European governments express concern over reports of U.S. surveillance enabled allegedly by Danish organizations. Epsilon Red ransomware is out and active. Ben Yellen looks at Florida Governor DeSantis's bill aimed at social media companies. Our guest is Giovanni Vigna from VMware with highlights from their 2020 threat landscape report. And police come looking for cannabis farming and find coin mining rigs instead. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. The Iranian wiper, described last week by Sentinel One, posed as ransomware in a campaign against Israeli targets. It's recently acquired genuine ransomware capabilities. Wired has an overview of the campaign, and CPO Magazine notes that one motivation for the imposture is false flagging. Tehran's operators appear to have wished to be taken for a Russian ransomware gang. On Friday, CISA issued an alert on the spear phishing incident in which USAID credentials for the email service Constant Contact were abused, to send targeted phishing emails to a range of victims. Microsoft last week attributed the campaign to the Russian threat actor Nobelium, but CISA's alert is noteworthy for specifically declining to offer attribution. It was updated Saturday to read, quote, CISA and FBI acknowledge open-source reporting attributing the activity discussed in the report to APT29, also known as Nobelium, The Dukes, and Cozy Bear, However, CISA and FBI are investigating this activity and have not attributed it to any threat actor at this time, quote. They'll provide updates as their investigation proceeds. The incident is still to be taken seriously, and CISA has advice on defense, but official attribution will have to wait. The White House has said that, for the most part, U.S. federal agencies successfully avoided infestation by the phishing campaign, And U.S. President Biden says that his upcoming summit with Russia's President Putin will take place as scheduled. That said, 
Industry has been much quicker in attributing the activity to Russian intelligence services, specifically to the SVR, and has shown little disposition to back off that attribution. Foreign Policy writes that one lesson to draw is that deterrence hasn't so far worked in cyberspace. The journal writes, quote, The latest Nobelium attack, whether it amounts to a significant breach of U.S. government cyber infrastructure or not, shows that Russia has not been deterred by waves of retaliatory U.S. and European sanctions over previous attacks. It also represents the latest example of authoritarian regimes turning to hacking groups to target their rivals abroad, whether foreign governments or human rights advocates. End quote. And the U.S. administration has come under foreseeable pressure to ratchet up the pressure on Moscow. But it doesn't appear that the campaign necessarily represents an escalation in cyber espionage. As an essay in Wired puts it, it's not that the SolarWinds hackers are back, it's that they never really left. Over the weekend, European journalists published results of an investigation linking U.S. intelligence services to Danish organizations believed to have cooperated in enabling U.S. surveillance of targets in Germany, France, Sweden, and Norway between 2012 and 2014. The Washington Post reports that France's President Macron says that that's no way to treat an ally. The AP records similar reactions from other European governments to the Obama-era snooping. Researchers at Sophos report finding a new ransomware strain in the wild— They call it Epsilon Red. The malware is written in Go, and it was delivered as the final executable payload in a hand-controlled attack against a target in the U.S. hospitality sector. Sophos said, quote, It appears that an enterprise Microsoft Exchange server was the initial point of entry by the attackers into the enterprise network. It isn't clear whether this was enabled by the proxy logon exploit or another vulnerability, but it seems likely the root cause was an unpatched server. From that machine, the attackers used WMI to install other software onto machines inside the network that they could reach from the exchange server. Quote. Why Epsilon Red? Sophos shares the etymology, which may be news for anyone not fully up to date with the Marvel Universe. In this case, the name comes from the threat actors themselves. Quote, the name Epsilon Red, like many coined by ransomware threat actors, is a reference to pop culture. The character, Epsilon Red, was a relatively obscure adversary of some of the X-Men in the Marvel Extended Universe, a super-soldier alleged to be of Russian origin, sporting four mechanical tentacles and a bad attitude. End quote. While the campaign uses complex layers of deception, the ransomware proper is, Sofo says, bare-bones, It's a 64-bit Windows executable, and all it does is encrypt the files in the target system. Other functions, like communication, deleting shadow copies, killing processes, and so forth, have been, according to the researchers, outsourced to PowerShell scripts. And finally, a story that almost seems too good to be true, a kind of harmonic convergence of the biggest trendoid industries out there, cannabis and cryptocurrency— comes out of the English Midlands. CNBC reports that the West Midlands police investigating reports that there was a big illicit cannabis farm in an industrial park in Sandwell found, surprise, a big coin mining operation instead. No cannabis, alas, but there were about a hundred rigs whirring away like Alan Turing's bomb. 
busy mining coin. What's wrong with that, you'll ask, adding dude if you'd like to reinsert the stoner vibe that initially drew the constable's attention. Well, it's this. They weren't paying for their electricity, so they were stealing, according to the evening standard, thousands of pounds worth of power. The standard says, quote, The IT equipment was seized from the building in the Great Bridge Industrial Estate, and inquiries with Western Power revealed the electric supply had been bypassed. What drew the police attention in the first place, you might be asking for a friend. According to CNBC, suspicions were aroused by, quote, Many people were visiting the unit at various points of the day, police said, adding there were numerous wiring and ventilation ducts visible. A police drone also detected a lot of heat coming from the building. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Researchers at VMware recently released their 2020 Threat Landscape Report, outlining some of the things they see from their unique perspective on Internet and data center traffic. Giovanni Vigna is Senior Director of Threat Intelligence at VMware, and he joins us with their findings. We work with telemetry that we collect from our customer, and since we have a sort of a large number of sensors, we we have a, a good view on some of the trends that uh, are happening in the in the wild in terms of detections, in terms of threats, in terms of how the threats try to avoid detection. Um, and this is true, especially if you look at the problem of protecting a data center where uh, you can have sort of like problems at scale as we have seen from 
the colonial pipeline uh, situation. Um, and so the, what, what prompted we wanted to communicate outside what we had seen in our sort of like slice of reality, because there are some insights that are interesting. Of course, we haven't, uh, some of the insights are not uh, astounding in terms of statistics. They're very um, understandable, but it's interesting to see some uh, little angles that are sort of surprising, at least to me. For example, we observed that there is still a lot of, you know, plain text passwords uh, floating uh, in in data centers, which was quite surprising. But then when we looked into it, people actually do that for a variety of reasons. Uh, we hmm. also looked at uh, how, for example, malware tends to spread laterally once they get a foothold on one of the machines in a particular network. And we saw that uh, a lot of activities based on RDP, which is not surprising per se, but it's interesting to see how uh, essential detecting that lateral movement has become those, you know, we, you hear you know, always about east-west traffic. And it looks like a buzzword, but uh, we found out since we see a lot of that east-west east -west traffic because of how our sensors are deployed, that this is really uh, a very relevant and useful information to understand the blueprint of a breach. Yeah, there are some really interesting insights here in your report. I mean, we can start, uh, I guess, with some of, some of the basics, but that, you know, email continues to be uh, at the top of the list of attack vectors. Yeah, this, this uh, I've been in this field for a long time. And, and sincerely, this is still surprising me how toxic email is, how uh, this has really become the, the first sort of like the, the first step in a, in a kill chain of an attack has almost always been an email because uh, unfortunately there is, you know, it, the email is really where you try to break the weakest link in a chain. You just need somebody to click on a link, open an Excel spreadsheet with a malicious Excel 4 macro. And fundamentally you have a first point of attack and you can collect everything from credentials, to you know, information that will allow you to spread out and connect to other users using social engineering. So finding out that 4% of the attachments that were received in general contained some form of maliciousness, which is orders of magnitude with respect to any other vector, I think is pretty interesting. That's Giovanni Vigna from VMware. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. So we got a story here from the Washington Post, uh, and uh, it's titled, Florida Governor Signs Bill Barring Social Media Companies from Blocking Political Candidates. This is an interesting uh, online policy move here. Ben, what's going on? I'll start with a dad joke by just saying, Signs Bill Barring, and this is not about the former attorney general. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. Uh, the, The actual story here is about a piece of legislation signed into law by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that takes aim at big tech platforms, specifically social media platforms. Mm. So the law does basically two things. The first is give Florida residents a cause of action if they think that tech platforms uh, are applying their content moderation standards in a discriminatory way based on uh, you know one's political viewpoint. It mm. allows them to sue these tech companies for a pretty inordinate sum of uh, money. Uh, and they would be allowed to sue those tech platforms in Florida state court. So that's Hmm. one provision. The other relates to uh, tech platforms' ability to uh, censor the accounts or to suspend permanently or temporarily the accounts of uh, active political candidates. Uh, So the purpose of this provision is to prohibit tech platforms, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world, from suspending a political candidate for more than, uh, I think it's 14 days in the piece of legislation, during a political campaign. And Hmm. if they don't abide by that regulation, they would be subject to a $250,000 fine every single day that they allowed that ban to continue. Wow. Uh, I'll note for posterity that there is a very famous resident of the state of Florida uh, who was banned from multiple social media platforms in a very high-profile way earlier in 2021, and I think it's no coincidence uh, that this piece of legislation has this provision. Uh, hmm. So it was signed into law. Uh, I think a lot of neutral observers have noted that this law is almost certainly blatantly unconstitutional and hmm. is likely to get struck down in federal court. Uh, and it's basically unconstitutional for two reasons. The first uh, concerns the First Amendment rights of the tech platforms themselves, you know, according to court precedent and a lot of the legal scholars and trade organizations, you know, there's this long-standing doctrine that these tech company platforms have First Amendment rights to regulate their platforms as they see fit. And you know, as uh, we've learned from a bunch of cases, corporations are people; they do have uh, constitutional rights, mm. and one of those rights is to regulate the content on their platforms. The second major constitutional issue is this issue of preemption. So the federal government um, has passed a law, the Communications Decency Act, which shields companies from liability, uh, these tech companies, for content moderation decisions on their platforms. Um, And this is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Florida, uh, Florida's law that they're passing here would run afoul of uh, that provision and because, according to our Constitution, the federal government is the supreme governing body of the land, the federal law would preempt the state law. So for those two reasons, it's very likely that this law will be thrown out in court. Um, so I don't think we're ever going to see uh, this law actually come into effect. It's scheduled to come into effect on July 1st of this year. I, I suspect we'll see a preliminary injunction before we get to that point. 
So why bother? What, what was uh, Florida Governor DeSantis up to here in going through this whole exercise? So I think this is rather performative on the part of Governor DeSantis. Um, you know, for one, the big boogeyman among his political allies on the right, at least currently, is these big tech platforms and the mm. fact that they are allegedly biased against conservative voices. And mm-hmm. this is a high-profile way to make that political point, saying, you know, we're not going to stand for this anymore. We're going to hold these tech platforms uh, accountable. Hmm. There's also, he's sort of hedging his bets. I mean, very clearly, Ron DeSantis wants to run for president. Um, He's probably secretly hoping that his co-Florida resident, former President Donald Trump, does not run in 2024, and Mm. that he would be kind of the natural heir to the Trump legacy. Uh, And this is something, obviously, former President Trump cares deeply about because he was deplatformed. Right. After the January 6th insurrection, um, basically every social media platform uh, permanently suspended uh, Trump's accounts. Um, and I think DeSantis knows that this might endear himself politically to some of uh, former President Trump's most diehard supporters. So we think that uh, the governor is sort of signaling to his supporters that if you, uh, if, you, if you bring me to a federal level office, this is the sort of thing I will push for at a national level. Yeah, I think, you know, there is certainly something politically effective about figuring out ways to punish your enemy through the force of law. And right now, the enemy among a lot of conservatives is are these big tech platforms. And there are Mm. federal politicians um, who want to do the same thing. I mean, most notably, Senator uh, Josh Hawley of Missouri has been adamant that he wants to institute these types of regulations on big tech platforms. So I think by enacting this law, this is a way for Governor DeSantis to distinguish himself among that field. You know, people like Senator Hawley in 2024 could say, well, I proposed this legislation. Um, And Governor DeSantis can say, well, I actually signed it into law, even Mm. though I suspect it will be struck down uh, in our in our court system. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I do think this is largely performative. Um, It is pretty clearly a constitutional violation. Um, But I I also don't think it's an unwise move politically for Governor DeSantis, who, you know, uh, despite some buzz, is still kind of an unknown on the political map. And this is a way to endear himself to um, the uh, conservative movement. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, interesting uh, policy move here from the folks in Florida. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, 
Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.